Now, you probably grew up with a saying, something like this, if not these very words, sticks and stones may break my bones, but what? Words will never hurt you. How untrue that is. We say that because we want to make people think that their words don't hurt us. But they do hurt. That's reality. Words have life and words can bring death and and oppression. Uh, There's no doubt that each of you here this morning have experienced some kind of unjust and false accusations against you. Um, But it's a common experience in our lives. And this isn't new. Just, Just think about a few biblical examples. For example, Joseph. Joseph was falsely accused by Potiphar's wife. And ended up spending some time in jail. David was maligned and uh, by his son and falsely accused by his son Absalom about not caring for people and not having time to to judge their you know their problems they were having. He won their hearts over and and David for this part you could fault him for some things but in, in this he was not guilty of anything and he had to spend time on the run. At least two days, which doesn't sound long, except when you consider those two days, his son was trying to kill him. Then you could go to Mordecai. Mordecai was a faithful Jew living in Persia. Uh, You know Mordecai from the book of Esther. So Mordecai and the Jews were accused by Haman of being disloyal to the king. And Haman came up with a plan to kill them all, including Mordecai. And well, God chose to vindicate Mordecai, but still the, 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 the charges against Mordecai and the Jews were false. Well, then you can move fast forward to Jesus' time. The, the Jews of Jesus' time falsely accused Jesus of many different things. They accused him of casting out demons by, by Satan, by the power of Satan. They accused him of blasphemy against God. They accused him of violating the Sabbath. They accused him of wanting to destroy the temple, the sanctuary of God. The disciples, likewise, were falsely accused. When Jesus was raised from the dead, the Jewish leaders came up with a plan with the soldiers that to say that that the disciples of Jesus came by night and stole his body away. And that story was continuing to be told, and it continues to be told today by some. Then you can fast forward and Think about Stephen, who was a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. The, the word of God was, was going out powerfully through him, and he was even doing signs and wonders to, to show that he was speaking authentic, authentically from God. And yet, he was falsely accused by the Jews of blasphemy. And as you know, he was martyred for that. Then you have the Apostle Peter, who wrote... To many different Christians, we don't know their names, but in, in the book of First Peter, he's, he's writing to people who are experiencing tribulation and persecution. Why are they experiencing persecution and tribulation? It's because of a Caesar that we know as Nero, who decided that he wanted to build a bigger, better Rome, and so burned half the city, and he didn't count on people being so angry they would want to, to dethrone him. So he blamed the Christians. And by blaming the Christians, he provided a scapegoat and so launched a persecution against them that that raged intensely for for many years. False accusations are part of our lives, particularly part of our lives as Christians, as the kingdom of darkness wages war against the light. So whether you suffer false accusations just because someone's coming after your job and they want your position, or whether they're coming after you because they think that you have harmed them in some way, Um, if they're just coming at you just because, these things are going to be experienced. Maybe they're coming after you for the name of Christ. Whatever the case, you are going to experience, have experienced, and are going to experience false, unjust accusations in this life. How do we respond to these? How does God want us to respond to these things? 
Well, by looking at Psalm 4, we're going we're to see three disciplined responses to distress that, that cultivate confidence in God and peace in your heart. And those two elements are important. We're looking at this just not to fill our heads with facts about Psalm 4, but we're looking at this so we receive instruction on, on how do we react when we're in, in distress, some, somehow persecuted. Maybe your life's not threatened like David's was in Psalm 3. In Psalm 4, his life doesn't seem to be threatened. They're just after his reputation. How do you respond? Well, Psalm 4 helps us to understand that, that how we are to cultivate confidence in God which results in peace in your heart. Well, let's just read this, read this uh, psalm together as we start. And, and as we start, I just want to make mention um, that I, I will um, read the, the prescription, and the superscription, and also what I would consider to be the postscription, which is not there, which is, the, I'll explain later, the prescription of the next psalm. Um, and I'll get into that in a moment. So Psalm 4, a psalm of David. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have relieved me in my distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O sons of men, how long will my glory become a reproach? How long will you love what is worthless and seek falsehood? But know that Yahweh has set apart the Holy One for Himself. Yahweh hears when I call to Him. Tremble and do not sin. Ponder in your heart upon your bed and be still. Selah. Offer the sacrifices of righteousness and trust in Yahweh. Many are saying, who will show us good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Yahweh. You have put gladness in my heart more than when their grain and new wine abound. In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Yahweh, make me to abide in safety. For the choir director, for the flutes. Now, many of the Psalms give us information about a historical context or uh, about how this particular psalm is to be sung. Remember the word psalm actually means something that's sung with instruments. So we could call it a hymn, if you will. Uh, psalms were originally meant to be sung. Part of this was to help believers remember them because they didn't have the word of God like this. They didn't have that in their homes. Uh, they would they would have to memorize it. They would have to keep these things in their head in order to keep them on their hearts. So the music not only was worship as they sung this, but it also helped them to remember. Now, the, the, these hymns, many of them were accompanied by music, as I said. And the notation that's provided is not clearly understood sometimes. But nonetheless... Give us an indication that these were sung and sung with instruments. Now, the musical notation that we find at the beginning of Psalm 4 in your Bible, and I did not read it intentionally, which probably brought a little confusion, but let me explain that. The, the, the musical notation at the beginning of Psalm 4, which is for the choir director with stringed instruments, was probably written as a postscript for Psalm 3, not as a prescript or a prescription or superscription with Psalm 4. According to a scholar named James Thurtle, who, who did a lot of research on this in the early 1900s, he found that these, the superscription of one hymn and the postscription of another hymn or, or psalm have over the years become confused and become mixed and put, put together. And even modern Hebrew professors like Bruce Waltke and William Barrick, who taught at the Master's Seminary, believe that Thirtle is right. And, and so it may be a little confusing for us because not many scholars have bought into this, but it seems to make a lot of sense because there are a few psalms that have um, superscriptions that call it a psalm and something else, which 
They can't be both. But if we understand how it's divided, then it, then it makes sense. Um, remember that these superscriptions are, are accurate. They're trustworthy. They may not be inspired, but they are historically accurate when they provide history for us. Thus, when this psalm says that it's, it was for the choir director, that, that notation is, is for the person that, that led the choir. And yes, they did have choirs. That's revealed to us in the Old Testament. And th this particular hymn was meant for the flutes. Uh, so some type of wind instrument to be sung, uh, to be used as they sung this particular hymn. The superscription tells us that this is a psalm of David. That is, it's a psalm written by David. It, it really is about David, but it's written by David. And I just want to reinforce to us that as we look at the psalms, they are ancient, very ancient. Some of the psalms are written by, well, we know Moses. So from Moses until the completion of the psalms, you're looking at about 900 years, a span of 900 years that these psalms were written over. And now that we look back at them as a complete whole, they've been, they were written thousands of years ago. So our minds might think, well, how can something like this written so long ago speak so pointedly to our lives, and that's, that's because they're written by the Word, by the, God, by the God Himself. So they are the Word of God, though written by fallible men. The Holy Spirit superintended the writing of these so that they would be timeless truths for believers of all time, to help guide us and lead us to know how to respond. The Psalms are, are beautiful. They're at times Majestic and how they exalt God and all the rich theology that they provide us. At other times, the Psalms are what I call raw. The psalmist is just, he's just distraught. He doesn't know how he's going to make it through another day. And, and you see that and you see him work through that and how he responds and, and how the Lord brings him to a different place. And, and through the Psalm that we're going to look at today is Psalm 4. You're going to see how God can take the psalmist from a very difficult place of distress where people are falsely accusing him. And you're going to see how he brings the psalmist, how God brings the psalmist to a place of peace and safety and, and really of, of joy. Though his circumstances, there's no evidence that his circumstances actually changed. So this morning, we're, we're going to see from Psalm 4 how to respond to false accusations in a way that, that is really timeless for all, all believers. The psalmist provides three disciplined responses to distress that cultivate confidence of God and produce peace in your heart. And I call these disciplined responses because they don't come naturally. Right? Naturally, you're going to respond with the flesh in a way that's very different from the way the psalmist encourages us to respond here. So let's look at these responses. When facing an oppressive situation, the first response we see from the psalmist is that he appeals to God for relief. He appeals to God for relief. And we see this in verse 1. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have relieved me in my distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. David appeals to God as the resource that he needs to survive this distress, this onslaught, this persecution. David understood that his real defense uh, against these accusations was God. It wasn't self-defense. It wasn't turning to his supporters and trying to find more supporters, those who would, who would try to find more who would support him than those who were against him. It was to God. And, and David appeals to God. He says, answer me when I call, O God. He's, he's appealing uh, to, the, to God. He, he's using the word Elohim. This is this, the generic word for God. Indicating that he's indicating that God is the one who knows all things, who sees all things, who created all things. He is turning to God for help as his resource. God is the Almighty. God is omniscient. God is omnipresent. He is the ruler and creator of all. David knows this. And he's turning to God as his resource for help in this trial, in this distress. And, and notice David's plea. He says, answer me. Answer me. And, and it's interesting that this is actually an imperative. 
So it's not, it's not something that David is, is putting, um, he's, let's just say he's putting it in a strange, he's putting it in a very strong way. Now keep in mind, an imperative is, it can be used for a command. But David, who, is, who has just used the name of God, right, who is calling upon God as the all-powerful, almighty one, knows better than to command God. That's not what's going on here. So imperatives can be used as a polite request from an inferior to a superior. And there are many places in the scriptures like this. And this is one of those cases. David is using an imperative to express the earnestness of his need for an answer at the same time being respectful that he's speaking to God. Answer me when I call. David is needing God to answer, to provide help. Now, David, again, is not commanding God, but he is appealing to God in a confident way. Confident, um, it's a confident plea that, that to, for God to answer when he needs help. Now, now, why would David need help in this situation? The, there are many people who connect Psalm 3 and Psalm 4 who believe the background of, of Psalm 3, which is that uh, of David fleeing from Absalom, his son, that that also applies to Psalm 4. So you might hear that and you might see a connection. And there very well could be a connection. The issue is, it's just not explicit. Psalm 4 doesn't actually make that connection for us. So I'm hesitant to make that connection. In Psalm 3, David's fleeing for his life. His life is being threatened. People are, perse- are persecuting him to death. There's a very different response, in a sense, from him calling upon God to defeat his enemies. It's a little bit different response in Psalm 4. And we see no hint of David's life being threatened. In Psalm 4, we see that the fact, as we'll look at in a minute, that, that David's reputation is actually being attacked. The honor of the king is, is being uh, maligned. That's what we see in, in Psalm 4. So it's, it seems that, that from the text itself that, that David is being accused by enemies in, in some way. David's being accused that he has sinned. Uh, they're probably saying things like, David is done. That there's no hope for David. Um, and, and so David is, is appealing to God for help. Now, notice what he says. He says, answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. So first, let's back up and just say, when I call. The Lord knows when we need help, even before we call. What's the point of him calling? It's an act of faith. He's turning to God as his resource. He's calling upon God. Not to inform God of something he doesn't know. Uh, God is always going to be faithful to his children. But when we have distress, when we experience uh, false accusations or things like that that people say against us, that we are called, uh, then we are to call upon God for our help. Now, David is calling upon God. He says here, O God of my righteousness. What, what exactly is he doing there? Well, he's primarily calling upon God as the God of his righteousness, meaning that God knows what's right. God knows that David is innocent in this particular, this particular matter. See if I can get that microphone to stop making, getting too close. Um, so, so David... David is not here claiming any kind of innocence. David knows that he has sinned in the past and that he has often needed to seek forgiveness from God. There are other Psalms that specifically address that. And yet he knows that the accusations brought against him on this particular case are completely false. They are not true. So David is is asking God to, to help him. He's pleading for God to, to vindicate him. Uh, James Boyce explains that what David is doing here in this way. I'll just quote him. He says, is there such a thing as a totally righteous sufferer? Is anyone ever really innocent? The answer is, of course not, unless we are thinking of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is the way some scholars have interpreted Psalm 4. But, but that is not the point here. None of us is ever utterly innocent. But there are nevertheless times of relative innocence in which evil people really do heap injustices on us, unquote. So that, that's what's going on here. David's not totally innocent, but he's innocent in the matter of which he's being accused of. 
the, the false charges against him uh, are the charges against him are false. And so David knows this and he's appealing to God, the God who knows what is right, the God who can establish David's righteousness. He is calling upon him to do just that. Uh, of course, there's a larger theological picture that this brings to our attention. The fact that David is not totally righteous. And, and that's the requirement of us in order for us to spend eternity in heaven with our Father. Now, the, the, in, the, in the eternal state, we, God will make his abode, his home, with his people. And in order for that to happen, we must be totally righteous. There can be no stain of sin at all in our lives. And so we need the righteousness. We, we need a righteousness that is, that is foreign to us. Martin Luther said we need an alien righteousness. Not alien as in outer space, but alien in that it's not, it's not native to us. Our righteousness is not sufficient. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We can be forgiven, but we can never be righteous on our own. So we need the righteousness of God. And the Apostle Paul speaks about this righteousness in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, but the righteous will live by faith. And when Martin Luther finally understood that passage, it's like the lights came on and he was saved. The Lord, Holy Spirit came within him and helped him to understand that passage, that the righteousness he needed was not anything he can obtain, but what comes uh, as a gift from God by faith. And this is explained in a very brief way in 2 Corinthians 5.21 which Paul, in that passage, Paul writes, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. There's this great exchange. Christ takes our, our sin and bears it on the cross and he gives us his perfect righteousness. Right? And that comes to you at the moment you believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior. At the moment you are born again, you have Perfect righteousness. So you don't have to fear any kind of, any kind of uh, rejection by God because you've been made perfectly righteous by faith in Jesus Christ through the work of Christ. Paul emphasizes the fact that this righteousness comes as a gift by God in Romans 4, 5. Just listen for a moment. But to the one who does not work, but believes upon him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God accounts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven, whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. And so when the Lord justifies somebody and gives them righteousness, he no longer calls their sin to account. And, and David very well knew that his own righteousness wasn't sufficient. So when he speaks of God as of my righteousness, within that we can see that David's acknowledgement that he needed God, who is his ultimate righteousness, uh, to clothe him with righteousness. Right? So back, back to Psalm 4. David called upon the God of his righteousness. And in a sense, when you're, when you're attacked, when you're accused falsely, when you're maligned, when you're in that kind of dis distressing situation where people are verbally assaulting you, you could do the same thing. If you know that you're not guilty of anything that they're charged against you, appeal to your Lord and ask him to be the God of your righteousness, showing that you are right, not necessarily for your sake, but for his glory. And that's what David is doing. So David appeals to God as his resource and as his righteousness. David also appeals to God for relief. Look with me at continuing in verse 1. He says, you have relieved me in my distress. Now, kind of interesting, this is worded in the past tense. You have relieved me? I thought he was praying for God to answer. What's going on here? Well, the past tense is sometimes used by writers of the Old and New Testament 
to, to indicate something that's so sure to happen that they can speak of it as a past action. He could be doing that. Right? I'm convinced that's not exactly what he's doing here. What he is doing here is he's looking upon all the, the past. He's looking to the past and he's seeing all the, the different ways in which God has rescued him. God has relieved him from past troubles um, in his distress. But what is he doing? As he calls to God as his resource and help, he is calling to God for relief, but he's also reminding himself of all the ways God has answered his prayers in the past. Right? That's one way to help build your confidence in the Lord, is to look at all the, the ways in the past. Like, you want relief from your current trouble that may take some time, and God may choose to answer that in a, in a way that's very different from what you want. But what you can do is look at, in the past, look at all the ways that he's answered prayers of the past and has helped you in the past and has rescued you in the past. And, and I think that's what David is doing here. He says, you have relieved me in my distress. And because he can look back and, and see that, then he prays, be gracious to me and hear my prayer. Now, before we move on, it's, it's interesting to, to look at the word meanings on uh, relieved. You have relieved me and the word distress. These are like one word metaphors in a sense. The word distress indicates something like closed in, boxed in. If you're claustrophobic, then, then you kind of get the, get the impression of what distressed means. It means you're hemmed in, you're pressed in. It's like uh, walking in a tight space. If you've ever walked like some of the rocks over here in, in some of the state parks, like where you've got these crevices and you're just, you can see light on the other side, but you're kind of squeezing through there and, and it's just kind of hemming you in. There's not a lot of room to move, right? So that's the word distress. It's like pressing in on you. You feel claustrophobic. You feel like everything's coming in on you. You're going to get crushed by the circumstances. But, but the word relieve, when he says you have relieved me, is in, in, indicative of opening up to a broad space like a, a pasture that's non-threatening. And so these are just one, these are like one word metaphors, right? So God takes someone, takes David. He's ta he took David from places that were like hemmed in, pressed in, and he brought them to a broad, safe place where he's not threatened anymore. And so just keep that imagery in your mind as you experience those distressing situations that God is the one who takes you from your pressed in, tight place, under attack, to a place of safety and refuge and openness. And he says, be gracious to me and hear my prayer. So, so David appeals to God as for relief. He appeals to God as his redeemer. Uh, notice the word, be gracious to me. David knows that he has no right to demand God's answer. That he can only appeal to God's answer by grace. That is the pattern of the believer. He's calling on God to be gracious and to hear his prayer. David knows that the only true help for his current uh, distress is the God who provides grace. And you know, the wonderful, wonderful, one of the wonderful things about God is that his grace it flows abundantly. God doesn't hand out grace like a stingy miser. God hands out grace abundantly. I don't know if you know what an artesian well is, where water just is thrust up. You don't have to pump it out of the ground. It's just thrust out of the ground, clean, clear, drinkable water. Well, well God's grace is like an artesian well that's just, that's just flowing out. And, and you just have to go seek that grace right? for the Lord's help for the time. And so he's appealing to God as his redeemer. He's asking for God's, uh, God's grace. Uh, He's, and he's asking for the Lord to hear. Notice in verse 1, he says, Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. Let me just say that the psalmist, uh, the Bible um, in general, and the psalmist in particular, often uses language, human language, to speak about, about God. For example, hear my prayer. Well, remember, this is, this is written in pre-incarnate times, so there's no body associated with Jesus. So, I mean, and, and so... God doesn't have physical ears to hear. And in fact, God doesn't need to hear because he knows all things. He knows your prayer before you even pray it. So the psalmist isn't, isn't 
you know, like asking God, um, like some of the false gods that people worship, he isn't trying to wake God up from sleeping. He, what is he doing? He's saying, hear my prayer. What is he doing? He's saying, answer me. Please answer me. And, and we use the word that way. When you talk to your children, you know, hear my instructions. What are you asking them when you, when you say that? Hear my instructions. What are you doing? You're not, you're not just asking them to pay like close, audible attention to your words. You're asking them right, to follow your instructions, not just hear them, but actually do them. So that's what the psalmist is, is using this plea for. Hear my prayer. He's saying, Lord, answer me. And, and so when facing an oppressive situation, the first discipline response you've you got to have is not self-defense. It's not give your enemies a tongue lashing. It is appeal to God for help. Because this will cultivate your confidence in God and is the path to really having peace in your heart and, and understand that you are in this, in, protected by God in this, in this particular situation. That he is the one that could provide relief for you. The second response is verses 2 to 5. And we see that, that David appealed to his enemies. And you're like, oh yeah, I'll wait for this part. Somebody attacks me, I, I, I can't wait to get back at him, right? But that's not what he's doing. That's the fleshly response. Right? You and I have, are, I'm sure almost everybody in here, if not everybody, has been guilty of like lashing out when someone has said something to us. That's not what the Lord calls us to do. When facing an oppressive situation, we see David appeal to his enemies. And, and that's our response as well. To appeal to your enemies to repent and trust in Yahweh. So David's appeal ultimately is an evangelistic appeal. It's an evangelistic appeal. Let's, let's just read these verses to remind ourselves of these. Verse 2. O sons of men, how long will my glory become a reproach? How long will you love what is worthless and seek falsehood? Selah. But know that Yahweh has set apart the Holy One for himself. Yahweh hears when I call to him. Tremble and do not sin. Ponder in your heart upon your bed and be still. Offer the sacrifices of righteousness and trust in Yahweh. So after appealing to God, David appeals to his enemies, but he does so in a way that's very unnatural to us. He goes out, in a sense, evangelistically to them. Look at his language, what he says. He, he says, O oh, sons of men. O oh, sons of men. Now, in English, uh, the actual meaning is, is a bit cloaked. It just looks like he's addressing, oh, sons of men could be anyone, right? But, but literally, this is sons of man, not sons of men. And it, sons of man is a technical term used in the Old Testament to refer to people of high rank. He is addressing landowners. He is addressing the upper class. So those who are, have accused him are those of the upper class. They're not the lower echelon, right? Lower echelon could be ignored by a king, but the upper echelon cannot be ignored by the king, right? So these are the, these are the men that are railing against us. And I won't take time to, to go there, but if you want to see that for yourself, you can um, go to Psalm 49.2, where the, the high men and the low men are, are placed together um, Using Hebrew terms, um, it, it, you won't be able to see that yourself, but what you will do is if you pay attention to the notation and just see what he's doing. The, the low, for example, Psalm 49.2 says, both the low and the high, the rich and together, are called to listen to the psalmist. It's just a phrase talking about um, that God is calling everyone to listen to the psalmist. The low and the high. But it's a, that, that translation, the high, is, is the same phrase, sons of man um, that it is used in our text here. And that's Psalm 49, verse 2. So, so David's enemies, those who are attacking him, are those of high rank. Um, and what does David do? Well, he asks them some questions. He says, oh, sons of men, how long will my glory become a reproach? Now, let's kind of figure out what David is, is doing here. My glory is a phrase that refers to David's honor as the anointed king of Israel. And the word reproach means to bring disgrace or shame. So the enemies were doing and saying things that brought disgrace and shame 
to the honor of the anointed one of Israel, upon David himself. We're not given the specifics of these, but these men were scoffers at David's glory. And again, this wasn't self-glory. This is glory tied to the glory of God our Savior, God his Savior. But I want you to keep what we learned in Psalm 3.3 in mind, where, where David says, he says, But you, O Yahweh, are a shield about me, my glory, and the one who lifts my head. So there's no doubt that the arranger of these psalms put Psalm 3 and Psalm 4 together, and the term my glory is clearly used as a reference to God in Psalm 3, that we should see some connection in Psalm 4 with the term my glory. David's glory wasn't really his own. Right? Any sinful king could be, take that kind of glory. But the kind of glory that David was referring to here, I think, stems from God himself. That God may appointed David as the king of Israel. And so these, were, these men were um, somehow calling uh, David's glory a reproach. They were bringing David into reproach and attacking him, accusing him of things that were false. Now, when he, when he asked this question, you've got to understand what he's doing. He, he said, how long will my glory be, become a reproach? How long? Does David want a numerical answer? Does he want like, okay, well, 24 hours. Or two days. Or we'll give you a month. Like, no. No, what is he doing? He's calling them to repentance. Let me give you an example. If you've ever dealt with someone who's a, who's a drunk, someone who continually gets drunk, can you find them drunk once again? Right? And once they sober up, you're going to ask them like, when are you going to stop getting drunk? Like, you're not really asking them like, to give you a day. Next week, next month. No, you're, you want them to stop now for their own good. Right? That's really what it is. It's a call to say, stop this. It's not what you're doing is not good. Stop it. And that's what David's doing. Oh, sons of men, how long will my glory become a reproach? And men, keep in mind, this is not... This situation, they are attacking David, so they are personally going after him. But David sees this from God's perspective. So David's not saying this out of personal vendetta or retaliation. David is saying this because as they dishonor him, they dishonor God. And his second question is somewhat, somewhat like that. He says, how long will you love what is worthless and seek falsehood? So the, the word worthless just means emptiness or, or vanity. To love something, uh, to, when we love something, we, we pursue it. And we make sacrifices to actually obtain that, whatever that is. You know, an athlete who wants to, to win a gold medal makes sacrifices. They, they love the, the pursuit of the Olympic medals. And so they make whatever sacrifices they need to make in order to pursue that. That's their love, in a sense. Well, David's saying, man, how long will you love what is worthless? And he's saying that, they, that, that their love, and their, in other words, their love of attacking him, it's worthless, it's pointless, it's vanity. And he says here that they're seeking falsehood. So that's where we get the idea that they're saying false things about him. They're, they're maligning his character. They're saying things about him that are not true. So David is, is really just calling calling these men to, to stop, to consider what they are doing. And notice at the end of this, uh, in the verse 2, he, he uses the phrase, or writes the word selah, which is intended to cause us just to, just to pause and reflect upon just what is being said there. And as this was sung, then, then the worshipers would, would pause and reflect in, in what ways are, perhaps am I, um, taking God's glory and making a reproach out of it. Right? In what way am I pursuing what is worthless and what is false? And it's profound. Those are profound questions to ask yourself. David moves on, though, and he says, but, but know this, but know that Yahweh has set apart the Holy One for himself. Yahweh hears when I call to him. Basically, David is doing this. David's warning them of failure. They are attacking him, hoping to depose him, bring him down perhaps to their level, whatever, whatever they're wanting to do. Perhaps they want someone else as the king of Israel. They're tired of David. Whatever the case is, we're not given those details. 
but they want to bring him down. But he's warning them that, that they are ultimately up against God. He says, but know that Yahweh has set apart the Holy One for himself. Notice he doesn't say God. That would be true. But he uses God's personal name, Yahweh. So he is indicating a covenant relationship. God established a covenant relationship with David. And God's not going to be unfaithful to that covenant relationship. And therefore, these men who have set themselves against David are doomed to frustration. They're doomed to failure. That's essentially what David is saying there. But know that Yahweh has set apart the Holy One for himself. The word set apart means chosen. God did the initiating. David didn't make himself king. David was the runt of the litter. When they went to look for a king, right? They wouldn't have picked David. David was tending sheep. God picked David. And so David is the, the man full of faults, but he's the man that God chose to rule Israel. And the term there, holy one, right? Ultimately, only God is the holy one. But this particular term is related to the word of steadfast love, hesed, in, in the Old Testament. That's steadfast love. So sometimes this word is, is the Holy One. It's translated as godly in some other translations. But it's related to steadfast love of God. In other words, he, God is not saying that David is, has that steadfast love like, um, like God does. But I think what he's doing, he's saying that, that the Holy One is the one that God has set his steadfast love upon. He set apart the Holy One for himself. It's all God, not David. And so therefore, these, as these men attack David, they're ultimately assailing God and God's plan and God's wisdom, God's choice. They don't like the fact that God has chosen David. But they are doomed to failure because as they attack Yahweh, uh, sorry, as they attack David, David's going to call upon Yahweh, and because of the covenantal relationship that he has with God, notice the end of, the, end of verse 3, Yahweh will hear. Yahweh will hear when I call him, call to him. David knew he had that relationship. And believers, if you're in Christ, you have that kind of relationship with your Lord today. When people assail you and attack you, you call and the Lord will answer. You have to, as, we, as we'll see in a moment, trust him how he's going to answer, but he will answer. Your sailors are, are doomed to failure, either in the short term or the long term, they're doomed to failure. So, so David appeals to them. And then he appeals to them to repent. Look at verse 4. He says, tremble and do not sin. Some of your translations may say, be angry and do not sin. So let me explain that. It's really the word tremble. It could be trembling. It's like you're so angry, you're just shaking with anger, right? Or it could be tremble with fear of God. Right? Commentators are torn about which way this goes. But it's interesting that the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 4.26 uses this verse, and he says, be angry and do not sin. And yet you have to, sometimes we say, oh, my anger is righteous anger. Well, be careful there, right? Because Ephesians 4.31 says, let all anger be done with it. Be, be done with all anger. So, so whatever be angry and do not sin means, right? We have to be careful that we don't quickly just say, oh, I have righteous anger. Because most of the times we do not. Because we're just angry that we got hurt, we got offended, our fame or our name got drug in the mud. Right? We're not really angry that God's glory has been defamed. Right? So consider that. But, but in Psalm 4, the, the context would seem to suggest that it's almost that the psalmist is saying uh, to, to uh, tremble with fear. Because he just told them that they're doomed to failure and to, to tremble with, with fear because God's going to judge them if they continue. But Paul uses it, the Apostle Paul uses it in a more sense of be angry, of trembling with anger. I don't know how to resolve that, but it's that, it's that mixture of ideas. Maybe it's a, those two ideas mixed together of anger and, and fear of God. But whatever the case, the, the psalmist is saying, it, it, as you tremble, either with fear of God or anger, do not sin. Don't sin. 
And so he's calling them to, to stop what they're doing. Stop this attack on them. Because they are sinning against God by this attack. Right? The scriptures clearly tell us to, to love our neighbor as ourself. Right? And that we're not to re- take revenge for ourselves. That we are to love our enemies. There's all sorts of responses that the scriptures inform us both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. So they have to stop sinning. If they're going to honor the Lord. And remember, David is attempting to evangelize them. Call them to repentance. Call them to faith. And so he says, not only tremble and do not sin. He says, ponder in your heart upon your bed and be still. What is he calling them to do? Get away from each other. Because, you know, uh, just as these men would get together, they would just feed upon one another. Their bad ideas would just go from bad to worse. So he's saying, get away. Get somewhere quiet. Maybe this is literal as you're getting ready to go to bed, just, just ponder these things upon your heart. Maybe he's just saying, get away. Get to a quiet place all by yourself. And, he, and he's saying there um, to listen, ponder in your heart. That is, think to yourself. Consider all that has been said. Consider all that has been said and be still. Now, the idea of being still is kind of just, just resting, right? Stop your contention. Stop it, rest, ponder. Um, and, and you see the word appropriate there, say law. Again, just pause, just pause. Think about what has just been said. And, and David continues to call them to pursue repentance in verse 5. He says, offer the sacrifices of righteousness and trust in Yahweh. Right? If they've sinned, then they needed to offer sacrifices for their sins. That then would result in righteousness. I think that's what he's pointing to there. And remember, this is the Old Testament times where they were offering literal sacrifices in Jerusalem for sins. Right? That has all been done away with through Christ. Christ is the one sacrifice for all, for all sins, for everyone who believes in him. Your, your sins are taken care of. Your sins are forgiven in Christ Jesus when you believe in him as your Savior and as your God. So, the psalmist here is calling his enemies to offer sacrifices of righteousness. And then he calls them to trust in Yahweh. You may not like Yahweh's decision, but trust him. Rest in him. You can do the same thing as believers today. Now, as, as, you, um, as we've gone through this and you think about your own situation, you might say, yeah, my, my enemies would never listen to me. Well, maybe they won't. You might not even know those who are like spreading rumors about you. That happens sometimes in the workplace or in, or in, you know, in a larger family. You don't know which family member is talking bad about you and spreading rumors. So you might not even know who your enemies are. In that case, you just, you just use this as a prayer. You pray for them this way. You pray that they would see the, the foolishness of their ways, the worthless, their, their, you know, their pursuit and love of what is worthless, how they seek what is false that they would actually see this, that they'd actually see Yahweh as the Holy One, that they would tremble, not with anger, but out of fear of God, and that they wouldn't sin, and that they would turn to Jesus Christ in faith, seeking forgiveness for their sins, and, and that they would learn to trust in Yahweh. So you, you can pray this way, even if you don't know them, even if they won't listen. Right? You can still respond in this way by appealing to your enemies for repentance and trust in Yahweh. Now let's look at the third response in verses 6 to 8. When facing an oppressive situation, affirm your confidence in God. Affirm your confidence in God. Now all of a sudden we have the word many. Many are saying. Who, who are the many? Right? The psalmist doesn't, doesn't tell us. Right? Perhaps it was those gathered around David. They were sympathizers with David and they were a bit discouraged. He, many are saying, who will show us? Who will show us good? Who's going who's gonna to help us out in this situation? We're under attack. We're under assault. Who's going to show us good? It's kind of a discouraging question, right? So they don't have a list of like, they don't have a lineup of, of men that are ready to save them and say, oh, who, which one of you? Who's going to do it? Oh, yeah, you. No, they're saying who, meaning they didn't see anybody. They, they, didn't, they, didn't, they, they didn't see God in that situation. But the psalmist is going to point them to Yahweh. He is going to affirm his confidence in Yahweh to provide what is needed. Look what he says. He says, lift up the light of your face upon us, O Yahweh. So he's speaking not to those who are asking, 
you know, the discouraged question, he is speaking to Yahweh. He, he is saying, lift up the light of your face upon us, O Yahweh. Right? So what is he doing? He's saying, God, we need you. You notice that what he's praying for isn't, God, we need relief, or God, we need good. He's saying, God, we need you. It's a very profound prayer. And when you're under attack, under false accusation, and some kind of distress, that's your greatest need. You actually don't need for that distress to stop immediately. But what you need is God. And when you see God in your situation, you realize how big and mighty and powerful, omniscient he is. Right? It brings great peace to your soul. And what, what the psalmist is doing here, he says, uh, when he's using the phrase, uh, lift up your face upon us, David's praying that God would be near him. And if God is near him, that's good enough for David. David can be in any distress, in any squeezed in, boxed in situation. As long as God's there, David is okay with that. That's what he's praying for. And he may be echoing what's known as the Aaronic blessing found in Numbers 6, verses 22 and 27. You could turn there if you like, uh, because I think it's important to, to see this. The idea of Yahweh bringing peace to those whom his face shines upon is, is an echo of this in Numbers 6. And it's funny, we call it the Aaronic blessing because Aaron was supposed to say it. But guess who gave it? God. God told Moses to tell Aaron to say this. I'll read it. Then Yahweh spoke to Moses saying, Speak to Aaron and to his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the sons of Israel. You shall say to them, Yahweh bless you and keep you. Yahweh make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. Yahweh lift up his face on you and give you peace. So they will invoke my name on the sons of Israel and then I will bless them. It's a prayer for God to be with his people. And as God is with his people, he blesses them, right? And we use that word bless. Uh, and I'm not sure if sometimes if we actually know what we're saying when we say that. It brings that, that God brings good. He brings himself. And as he brings himself to us, that he, he provides peace for us. Uh, the word peace is the word shalom. You've probably heard of that. It's, 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 a, it's a greeting, but it's more than a greeting. And it's not just talking about peace in the sense of lack of war with your enemies, but it's speaking about a, a state of, of really eternal peace, of spiritual peace. You're not at war with God. You're not at war with men. And God provides you everything that you need. That's the state of peace. And that's the state of peace that the Lord brings. And that's why the psalmist says, you look at it, he says, you have put gladness in my heart. Situation hasn't changed as far as we know, right? This is just a prayer, so it's not like drawn out over, over time, right? You have put gladness in my heart. Even though there's the enemies, they may or may not have repented. We don't know if they listened. But because he's getting a glimpse of his great God, and that, that the, the light of God's face is shining upon him, right? he's saying, you put gladness in my heart. I'm just glad to be with you. God, wherever you direct my paths, no matter how difficult, as long as you're with me, I'll have, I'll have gladness. And this is really what, what fuels Paul to say, rejoice in the Lord. Again, I say rejoice. Right? Rejoice in everything. Rejoice always. That's why Paul could rejoice when he was in prison, because he knew that God was there with him. His face was shining on him. And he gives an example, more than when their new grain and new wine abound. So, so those that were saying, you know, who's going to show us good uh, on, on, the, on harvest day? They were so glad. I mean, just, we, we're not much of an agrarian society, so we, this, this is kind of lost on us very easily. But you work all year. Sometimes you get two harvests, two crops in, but one to two crops, that's it. You work all year long for one to two crops. And when it grows and the harvest is good and you bring in an abundant harvest, you rejoice. You rejoice. It's your income for the whole year. It's food for your family. It's food for others. Time to rejoice. Well, Davis, David is saying he, that the joy God 
provides, that Yahweh provides, is, is more than that kind of joy. It's greater. It's better. And he says this, in peace I will both lie down and sleep. And the idea of going to sleep is why sometimes this is called an evening prayer. Um, it's not relegated to the evening, but that's why sometimes it's called an evening prayer. But think about it. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. David has those who are, who are accusing him falsely. Right? When you've been in that situation, could you just lay down and go to sleep? Right? You can if you're trusting in God as your safety. Right? I know there's lots of reasons why people can't sleep. Sometimes your mind is just working on things. Sometimes there's physical things going on. Right? But, but this, this particular reason, if you stay awake, because people are making false accusations against you, or because they are somehow maligning you or attacking you, know that tonight, that doesn't have to be the case. You could put your trust in God as your Savior. He will protect you and help you. He will keep you. He will protect you so that you can lie down and sleep. Not just lie there and your mind racing in anger and hurt. You can lie down and Sleep. God is the God of sleep. There's a lot of theology in sleep when you can just trusting Him. And He says, For, this gives us the reason why He can do this, for you alone, O Yahweh, make me abide in safety. So there's the ultimate, the ultimate like uh, proof of trust. That the psalmist has reached a place of just confident trust in God. He knows that God will keep him safe. Now, when, when the psalmist says you'll keep him safe, understand, understand that God's timeline is not your timeline. The way that you want God to answer is not God's time to answer. Because sometimes safe to us isn't so safe by the way we look at things. I mean, Joseph was a pri- imprisoned for quite a while before he, you could say he was vindicated. He never actually was vindicated, but he was raised to a prominent position of leadership. So in a sense, he was vindicated. But he was in jail for quite a long time. I don't think he ever got an apology for being falsely imprisoned. Um, David, I don't think, really got vindicated with the whole situation with Absalom. It just God brought recovery from that, but no real vindication. Uh, you could say Mordecai was totally vindicated and totally protected. Instead of being dead, God killed Haman's enemies. I mean, Mordecai's enemies, he, he hung Haman on the very platform that Haman built to hang Mordecai. How's that for profound justice? Uh, your Savior, Jesus, was murdered with, with his vindication actually waiting. The Lord actually hasn't been vindicated. He only appeared to 500 people after his resurrection. I say only. That's a lot of people. But it's not like he went back to the Pharisees and Sadducees and said, I told you so. He will do that, but that day is in the future. Uh, Disciples' vindication doesn't really seem to have happened either. The lie about that that they stole Jesus' body the night is still being told by Jews today to try to explain away the resurrection of Christ. Stephen was murdered. Where's his vindication? Does God really keep his servants safe? Well, he does. And, And many Christians have been uh, accused, falsely accused, and even today are falsely accused and martyrs. So what's going on? Are, is, this, is this Psalm and Psalm 3 not really, not really true? You know, where he says, you, you, O Yahweh, make me abide in safety. What we have to understand is that, is that God, if you are trusting in God, God will keep you safe in the way that he determines to do that. And if he chooses that you die for his name, he'll resurrect you. You have to trust him. You can't fight against this. You can die in fear and cower because people are pursuing you for the name of Christ or you can die with confidence. If you look at the martyrs, how they died, almost all of them died confident that the Lord would resurrect them. This was not the last word. The Lord would raise them up and would judge their persecutors in the future. The Lord would bring about vindication. So we have to have that kind of trust. Not just the trust that says, Lord, I'll trust you as long as you bring good. 
No, we have to have the trust that says, Lord, no matter what you bring, I know I'm safe in your hands. You will provide for me. And even if the ultimate harm comes to me and someone kills me, martyrs me for the name of Christ, you will resurrect my body and you will hold the enemies accountable for the ways and you will vindicate my, my relative innocence for your namesake. You're, you will do all that. That's the kind of trust we need to have. And, and that's why Jesus said this in Matthew 5.11. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. If they persecuted Jesus, don't be surprised that they persecute you and say false things against you as well. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, we are just thankful to you for your grace, your love, your mercy. The fact that you chose us. Lord, that you reached down. You woke us up. You opened our eyes to see the truth of the gospel, the truth of the glory of Christ, our Savior. And Lord, we just ask that you would just work in our lives uh, to help us trust you like the psalmist trusts you. That when people attack us or say false things against us, that we would not retaliate, that we would not seek revenge, but that we would appeal to you as our help, as our resource for help, as our Savior, as our Redeemer, Lord, as the one who hears us, as our righteousness. And Lord, that you would help us to appeal to our attackers, our enemies, calling them to repentance and faith. And Lord, that you would help us to affirm uh, our confidence in you. Because you are trustworthy and you are reliable. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.